Do you enjoy a good crime thriller? You know how the plot unfolds in one of those, don't you? There's a guy and he gets a job at a company and he discovers that the company is crooked. He meets a friend and sooner or later he discovers that his friend is part of the mafia, but he's in so deep at this point that somebody will eventually come to him and ask him to do something that he doesn't want to do. And at first he'll refuse, he'll resist, but then they'll put the pressure on. They'll be bribing him. They'll be threatening him or his family. And then there's that classic line that's in all the movies you know what the guy will eventually say don't you every man has his price every man has his price you know the theory behind that is that every person given a certain amount of pressure in just the right situation will sell out those people those things that he most values that every man has his price you know, Paul would write to the churches and he would tell the churches that, yes, every man does have his price. And it's a price that none of us could ever pay. It's a price that it took Jesus to pay for all of us. And so Paul, he will write in prison and on his deathbed to Timothy in 2 Timothy. And he'll write to him and he'll say, in a world full of sellouts, you don't sell out. You run the race. You, you do the right thing. You make disciples. This is the encouragement from Paul as he knows his days are numbered to Timothy. And this morning, we're going to check that out as we conclude our series, Disciples Making Disciples. It's incredible, really. In chapter in 1 Timothy, Paul tells, tells Timothy that uh, he needs to run the race. And in second Timothy, he says, I have run the race. I have finished the course. I have fought the good fight. And he's imploring Timothy to do the same. Let's go ahead and check it out. Second Timothy chapter two, verses one through seven, second Timothy chapter two, one through seven. And it talks about how we too can run the race of discipleship. Paul writes, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. To set this up for you, at the end of chapter 1, Paul tells Timothy that there are those who have abandoned the faith, that those who have walked away. And so he's imploring Timothy not to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that disciple-making is this mission that we're given. It's not just something that we do. It's who we are. It's who we've been adopted to be. And so Paul, he speaks to Timothy as this spiritual son. And do you have those kind of parents? <laughs> Are you familiar with those kind of parents who they will tell their son, hey, I raised you better than that. You're not supposed to be doing that. Or they'll say to their daughter, hey, you're not going to be wearing that. And the protest will come. Oh, but mom, dad, everybody else is doing it. Oh, and then the response you'll get after that. Well, hey, if I was everybody else's parents, everybody else wouldn't be doing that. But I'm not everybody else's parent. I'm your parent. And I've raised you to know better. I've raised you to live better. You know how that conversation can unfold because it's an easy 
excuse, isn't it? Everybody else is doing it. Look what everybody else is doing. What the culture does, what everybody else does should not affect what you do. This is what Paul is imploring Timothy. He's saying, hey, I raised you better. You're my spiritual son. I raised you better. And so you live better. Depending upon how you want to date the life and ministry of Paul, uh, Paul probably wrote this letter somewhere between 60 and 65 AD. We believe that he was uh, killed and executed by Nero in around 65 AD. And so Paul is writing this letter to Timothy when he knows his, his days are numbered. He knows at this point, hey, he's not going to get out of this thing alive. So it's a very sentimental uh, type of letter and he's looking back on his life really and saying I have fought the good fight I have run the race I've done all these things and he's imploring Timothy to do the same that hey I've raised you as a spiritual son to live this way that hey, things are changing in the climate at this time especially politically Christianity had gone from being kind of a curiosity to a nuisance to the leaders in Rome. I mean, the Caesars were getting upset, particularly Nero. And so he's out and he's rounding up Christians in Rome, especially, and he's having them killed, executed, locked up, all kinds of things. And so the persecution is intense. And so with that type of intense persecution, people are falling away. They're, they're, they're retreating from their faith. And so Paul, he's wrote to Timothy about that. He's talked to Timothy about that. And he's telling Timothy, but as for you, you know better, you live differently. You know, in this life, people will betray you. People will turn away. Things are going to be hard. Things are going to be difficult, but you continue to fight the good fight. You know, it's interesting. I remember when I was just beginning at Dallas Theological Seminary and starting out, and I was there at orientation the first day, and the guy who was leading the orientation, he's up there and he's talking, and you know what kind of a special place it is because you know the people who have sat in those seats before you, the faithful leaders like Chuck Swindoll and Tony Evans and David Jeremiah and so many more. And so you're wondering who are, who are going to be the next leaders of the church, who are going to be the the next people who really impact others to follow Jesus. And as this guy gets up and he begins speaking, he has all of us stand and to, to meet the people to our right and to our left. And then he said, and look to your right and left again. Chances are in 10 years, uh, only one of the three of you will still be in full-time ministry. And there's a decent chance that one of the three of you will fall away from the faith altogether. Now, I looked to the guy at my right and I looked to the guy at my left and I had just met them as we were, we were seated there and was talking with them. And the one guy, well, he had just graduated from Bible college and he was so excited to be a DTS. He knew the names of just about all the faculty. He had read many of their books. He was just so pumped to be there. The guy on my left, well, his parents were missionaries and he was the, the son of a missionary and he too was so excited and couldn't wait to be at Dallas. Me, well, you know, I had come from the University of Central Florida. I knew the name of one prof at Dallas and I had never been on a mission trip before. 
And so I'm looking at these two guys and I'm thinking, well, chances are, I can't imagine either one of them not being in ministry. Like they're committed to this thing, but I think I am too. And you just kind of have this wonder. Now today, I can't tell you what those two guys are doing. I've kind of lost, lost touch with them. But of my closest friends during my time at Dallas, there's about six of us. I can tell you that only me and one other guy is still in full-time ministry. And one of the six, well, they've walked away from the faith all together. The Christian life is hard. And so Paul is writing to Timothy in a Roman prison because he's been uh, imprisoned simply for preaching the gospel of Jesus. And he's telling uh, Timothy, hey, no one's come to see me. Those people that you thought would be here to visit me, those people who, who you thought would still be encouraging me, they're not here. They're, they're, they're not coming. They have walked away. They have abandoned the faith. And you can imagine that type of hurt, that type of betrayal, that type of pain. And so Paul is telling Timothy, but as for you, I raised you better. You are going to live differently. Yes, things are going to be hard. Yes, things are going to be difficult. Don't be surprised when you're taken advantage of. Don't be surprised when people slander you and say false things about you. Don't throw your hands up in the air and just say, why me? Don't whine. Don't complain. You understand that following Jesus is difficult, but this is who you are. Know who you are. You know, I don't know where we got this mythology, this outright lie that just kind of tells us that once you follow Jesus, that everything is just perfect, that your life just goes without any hitches whatsoever. I mean, it's almost as if, you know, you'll never have to experience traffic anymore. You won't have weeds growing in your lawn anymore. I don't know who told us that, and I don't know why we ever believed it, because Jesus told us that in this life, you will have trouble, that when you identify yourself with him, that people will treat you just the way they treated him. So this means you're going to stand out means you're going to be recognized. You're going to look like Jesus. You're going to love like Jesus and trouble is going to come. And then you endure it and you endure it with thanksgiving. And Paul, as he's writing to Timothy, he says, here's how you make disciples. Here's how you endure that, that trouble. Here's how you remain committed to the course. And he says, you do that like a soldier in the heart of battle, like a soldier, by the time Paul is writing this letter, the Roman Empire was long since had established her dominance, continuing to expand her borders. And so in, in order to maintain that type of control, the Romans, they had built the famous Roman road system, and they had sent many of their soldiers out to the perimeter, uh, the, the, the perimeter of their territories to, to guard the, their borders, to make sure that no intrusion uh, could occur. And so to get these soldiers ready, there was a very strict regimen that they had to go through a very intense training to be there, to guard the border. There could be no weakening of their resolve, of their skill, of their strength. I mean, daily discipline was needed. Diversions would not be tolerated. In the Roman presence, it was so prolific that when Paul's writing this, this image of a dedicated soldier, it would be immediately recognizable and impressive to anybody reading this, especially to Timothy. And so 
He's imploring us that we must have the dedication of a soldier in our disciple making. That we, we as a soldier, we understand that we have one obligation. It is not to worry about civilian affairs. It, it is to complete the mission given to us by our commanding officer. We do not let the secular world drive our agenda. We do not let the secular world control our thought processes. We don't get entangled with civilian secular affairs. We do not let unbelievers influence the way that we think and see the world and, and impress upon us their values. We have a king. We have a commander. His word will define us. Will define us. His commands will give us our marching orders and tell us how we ought to behave. He leads us. Everything else is just noise. So, Paul writes to Timothy, you have the dedication of a soldier as you make disciples. Don't worry about all the rest. This is the agenda. God has stationed us in this generation at this time with this mission. And the good soldier says, I'm dedicated. That's my king. That's my leader. I'm following him. I am dedicated. I will endure any pain, any hardship, any difficulty to accomplish the mission. I'm not going to be sidetracked by secular sideshows. You had the dedication of a soldier in making disciples. And as impressive as that is, as just incredible as that is, Paul says that's not enough. Yes, you had the dedication of a soldier, but you also had the discipline of an athlete. I mean, have you ever had the opportunity to hang around a professional athlete? I'm not talking about some guy who, you know, at the weekends, he's pretty good at like a pickup game, but I'm talking a professional athlete. I mean, if you've met these guys, I mean, I had the opportunity to cover the Orlando Magic for a season. And if, when you meet these guys, you, you understand that years before they ever hear their name called over the loud system, years before they're ever playing on center stage in front of all the bright lights and the crowds hooping and hollering for them, years before all that, well, they've spent many, many years preparing for that moment, waking up when everyone else is sleeping, having a regimented diet where they are disciplined in what they eat and what goes into their body, where they practice and practice and practice to make sure that they're ready. So you understand that the game is won long before the whistle is ever blown. The game is won in the preparation, in the study, in, in the discipline of it all. And so Paul says to Timothy, you have the discipline of an athlete. You, you take your identity as a disciple maker with the same type of seriousness as a professional athlete takes as they prepare to one day hear their name called uh, on those loud speakers and to play in front of the bright lights on the center stage. Paul would write to Timothy and he says, he, he, he would say at the end of this letter that I want to receive the crown, this crown that is stored up for me as I have run the race faithfully and the Lord will give it to me on that day and not to me only, but for all of those who hope in his return. He says, I want that crown. And so when, as an athlete, this is the image that he's given to Timothy, that as an athlete, you discipline your life, you pay the price, you endure the cost, whatever it takes, but you give it your all. And so what does that mean for us? 
Well, it means that we become conversant in the meta narrative of scripture, that we can talk about the whole gospel. It means that we're going to journey with people. We're going to get to know people. We're going to, we're going to invest in their lives so that we know the whole man. And it means that, Hey, we're not going to give up. We're going to go the distance. We're going to go the whole way. If the world says you're missing out on this, you say, I don't care about that. My focus is on the crown. This is what is stored up for me. This is what I want. When the world rejects us, we're going to say, this is great training. We're getting stronger. We're getting tougher. We're getting wiser. Why? Because we had the discipline of a professional athlete as we make disciples. Paul, he then goes on, he says, hey, that's two is not enough. It's one thing to have the dedication of a soldier. It's one thing to have the discipline of an athlete, but you need something else. And so he uses this illustration of a farmer. And in Paul's day, everybody knew that being a farmer was extremely hard work. And everybody knew farmers if they weren't farmers themselves. I mean, in those days, you, you got up early and you worked late. There was no machines to do the work. You go out and you do the planting by hand and you do the weeding by hand and you do the harvesting by hand. You do it all by hand. It was hard work. It was not an easy job. If your crop was going to produce... Well, it means that you had put in a lot of time to make it produce. You had to make sure that uh, it was going to happen. Otherwise, hey, the crop is going to get scorched. The ground's not going to be ready. Weeds are going to overgrow this thing. So you have to put in the hard work consistently day after day. Paul is saying you must have the diligence of a farmer as you make disciples. That you can't just do it haphazardly. You can't just do it when you feel like it. But you had the diligence, you put in the long hours, you'd be willing to build into these relationships. You have the diligence of a farmer in disciple making. And so what's the mission? Well, Paul says that it starts with knowing your identity, knowing who you are, what you have learned from me, Paul says. And what has Paul taught Timothy? He's taught him who he is. He, he's taught him that, hey, what the world says about you doesn't really matter. It's what God says about you that matters. And who, who are you? Well, you're Jesus's. You, you are a disciple maker that he has saved you to impact others. This is who you are. And so you pour into that. You say, okay, this is who I am. This is what I'm made to do. This is who I'm made to be. Let me be this disciple maker, this impactor of people that God has made me to be. This is Paul's it, it just imploring Timothy to live this life. I have raised you to know this, so you must live this. You know, sometimes we have this hesitancy, though, where out of this overflow of who we are in Jesus, our life is then to be expressed and live out and poured out for others. But we have this hesitancy because we think, oh, if I really start making disciples, well, they're going to start asking me questions and I don't have all the answers. And, you know, it's true. You don't have all the answers. I don't have all the answers. I've been in a whole lot of Bible classes and just this last week, I'm having a conversation with my daughter and she asked me a question. I did not have the answer to it. We don't have all the answers, but it's like any other relationship, right? I mean, you take any other relationship that you have in life, you take your relationship with your, with your spouse, with your parents, with your kids, with your grandkids, whoever the case may be, when you're in a relationship with these people, what happens? Well, you tend to talk about them. 
It just comes out. I mean, you, you talk about them and, and how they impact your life and how, what it's like to live with them and, what, and, and the things that you've done with them and this type of thing. Does it mean that you know every last detail of their life? No, you, you don't know it all. There's things that you're still learning. Yeah, you know a lot, but you don't know it all. It's the same way with a relationship with Jesus. Do we know every last detail about God? No, we're still learning. We're, the, the relationship is dynamic. We should know more 15 years from now than we know today. But what we know today, well, that's still enough to share with others. Why? Because we're in a relationship with him. So it just comes out. It's out of the overflow of it all. There's a joy in which it just comes out. And so Paul says, he's like, as all these other people are falling away and they're forgetting who they are, you don't do that. You cannot forget who you are. You know, it's kind of like being on an airplane, right? And you've been on an airplane and they tell you, okay, hey, if something tragic happens and the oxygen masks fall from the ceiling, you make sure you put yours on before you help anybody else. Why? Because if you don't have yours on, you're not going to be much help to anybody else for long. You got to know who you are. Your, your identity in Jesus must define who you are. You must be convinced of this because once you know who you are, well, then you know your mission. Because your mission is not simply what you do, it is who you are. Disciple making is not just an act of the believer, it is part and parcel with being a Christian. So you know who you are in Christ, and then you are out to impact others for Christ. And this is what Paul is telling Timothy here. It's incredible. Paul says, hey, what you have learned from me. You then take all of that and you teach it to other faithful men, other reliable men. You know, it's, it's important that he's saying faithful men, reliable men. There may be somebody out there. They have all the potential in the world. But if they're not faithful, that's not who you go to. You, you got to move on. If they're not going to be faithful to the task, you got to move on. You got to shake the dust off your feet, as Jesus would say. We're, we're not looking for potential. We're looking for faithful that's, that's who we're looking for to take that first step of obedience. Because if you don't take the first step, well, you miss the whole journey. You must look for faithful men. It's incredible here as Paul lays this out for Timothy. He says, what you have learned from me, you then teach to faithful men who they themselves are then able to teach to others also. You got four generations here happening. Why? What's the vision? It's this flywheel thing that they want to get spinning, that God wants to get spinning, that we are impacting others who are impacting others who are impacting others who are impacting others. And you reach this point of spiritual maturity where you look over the course of your life and you realize, hey, my fruit is growing most on other people's trees, that I've impacted these people and now they're impacting these people. And I've impacted these people and now look at who they're impacting. And all of a sudden, there's just this great flywheel of discipleship that is beginning to take place, that this is who we are. And you know what? This is how the church has spread throughout the centuries. It's one faithful person going to another faithful person discipling them who then go to other faithful people, disciple them. And so the baton continues to get passed. 
You know, I enjoy the Olympics. I don't know about you. And one of the fun things in watching the Summer Olympics this year is the relay races. You know, it's fun just to watch four really, really fast people just run and on a team and they're working together. But you know what? A lot of really, really super fast teams have lost because they couldn't pass the baton. And so relay teams, they spend hours and hours and days upon days and months upon months passing that exchange, how to, how to be ready to pass the baton, to receive the baton and to run the race as this whole thing is happening so that you don't have to slow down. You don't have to stop, but the whole thing can happen in stride because if the baton is dropped, the race is lost. Just imagine for a moment. If Paul were giving this instruction to Timothy and he were telling Timothy, hey, I want you to take what you've learned from me and I want you to entrust it to faithful men. And as he's telling this to Timothy, there's a room full of us, you and me. And as Paul is hearing, as Timothy is hearing Paul say this and he surveys the room, would he look at you? Would he look at me? What do you think? You know what? That's the faithful person that I need to pass the baton to. I know that they will be able to receive it and continue to run with it. You know, that's God's vision for our lives. He wants us to be the type of men and women who can take that baton and continue to run with it and continue to pass it. In order to be those kind of people, you almost have to step back and ask the question, who's pouring into me? Do I have a Paul in my life who's saying, hey, as everyone else has fallen away and getting sidetracked with the secular sideshows, are you laser focused on who you are? Do you have the dedication of a soldier, the discipline of an athlete, the diligence of a farmer? Is this true of your life? See who is pouring into you and who are you pouring into? That's the question. Otherwise, the baton is liable to drop. The race will be lost. May it not be lost with our generation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in addition to simply saving us, to securing an eternity for us with you, God, that you have passed this baton of faith to us through faithful men and women throughout the centuries. And God, as the baton now comes to us, may we not drop it. May we too pass the baton faithfully to the people that you've put in our circle, wherever it is we live, work, study, and play. May we make disciples who they themselves are able to make disciples. We need your help to do this. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.